Amen. Thank you, Jordan. You let the secret out. Play the ukulele, the piano. What's next? Appreciate that. Well, as Kevin said, it is a delight to be able to worship with the saints of God this morning. And uh, the saints are marching on, at least with birthdays anyway. It looks like there's going to be a lot of celebrating this week in the church family, a lot of birthday cakes. Because um, according to the bulletin, there are eight birthdays this week in this church family. There might even be more that aren't mentioned in there. But uh, according to my calculation, it looks like um, Grampy takes the lead in the birthdays uh, this week. And Chantry's trying to catch up. But uh, then we have lots of them in between. So we happy birthday to all you folks, saints that are marching on in years anyway. Uh, also, just another thing is announcement is we will have our call to worship, kind of an official call to worship beginning in the first Sunday of November. Um, and we're going to do our best to start at 1035. At least that's my plan anyway. We'll get the sound team and the worship team coordinating. And Corky's going to start us off with an official call to worship. That will kind of give us more organization to where we can all be focusing on God at the same time. Now, it's brought to my attention that there's the possibility that people that uh, come habitually late, habitually late won't even hear this announcement and won't know what's going on. So we're going to try to put it in the... Um, we're going to try to put it in the bulletin and prayer chain. And if you know somebody like that, you might want to let them know that starting the first Sunday in November. And then also in the end of November, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we'll have our traditional share service. So I'd appreciate if you would just ask God, um, God, what are you doing in my life? I know there's plenty of things God is doing in our hearts and our lives that we can be grateful for. But what can I share with this body that would exalt you? To show the body how awesome you are and also edify my fellow believers in their walk with Christ. It's a, it's a very unique service that we have and it's, a, it's just a great opportunity for us to share to exalt God and edify the saints. So be thinking about that, praying about that. And as soon as you get the prompting from the Spirit, let me know. That would be good accountability. Then you can't back out. So let me know if you'd like to share. I would appreciate that. And then lastly... Um, Lord willing, this will be the leak, uh, the leak. This will be the year or I'm sorry, the week that the leaks will stop because we're planning on getting a new metal roof, charcoal gray metal roof, uh, 40 year roof. So um, Corky will be 103 before he has to make decision about what to do in changing this roof again. So that's a huge praise, isn't it, Corky? All right. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 6 today, and we are examining the words in a sermon that Jesus preached that we know of as a sermon on the mount because he literally spoke these words on the side of a mountain. And in this sermon, he is preaching to people, disciples and those that perhaps are thinking about believing in him and becoming his follower. And he's been teaching them what the kingdom of God says about what it really means to be blessed. And he's been teaching them or preaching to them what it really looks like to be an agent of change. And he's also been preaching what it really looks like to obey the commands of God, the laws of God. 
And of course, as a result of Christ in our lives, we will evidence of that transformation will be fruit. And so those that are followers or true disciples, true followers of Christ will be will do everything they can to try to look like him. Scripture says, be holy as God is holy and Christ is holy. Scripture also says that we are to conform to the image of Christ. So it all fits and works together as we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more holy. And so that's what the kingdom of God is about. Christ or God proclaims us righteous when we believe in Christ. It's a proclamation. It's a grace. We didn't do anything to earn it. But then as uh, as a lifestyle or what it looks like to be proclaimed righteous is to begin to become holy. And it's what Jesus calls in his sermon practicing righteousness. So we, you could call it sanctification. Becoming holy. But Jesus in his sermon, he calls this process of becoming like Christ or becoming more and more holy, practicing righteousness. And a beautiful thing takes place when we give our lives to Christ. We begin to come more, become more sensitive about the sin in our lives and the evil in our lives. And, and desire and thirst after doing the right thing. After being more like God and pleasing God. And it's a beautiful thing when we become more and more righteousness, righteous and dispel the darkness. And we become uh, vessels that are honoring and glorifying to God. And really, we do become those agents of change. But then in the middle of describing this beautiful process that takes place and this beautiful work of people that are now practicing righteousness, Jesus ushers this warning and he even uses the words beware And I think of the words beware and um, picture a sign, beware of dog, because that sign is posted to let people know there's danger close by. There's a dog close by. There's danger. And you want to have all your senses open to the fact that you don't want to get too close to this danger because this is a dog that you need to beware of. It's not going to come up to you and lick you in the face like my dog. But it's going to perhaps put your life in danger. And so Jesus says, beware, because in this beautiful process of practicing righteous righteousness, trying to be holy, there is this inherent danger or evil of becoming fake and phony in the process. And it's what Jesus in his sermon calls beware of the hypocrites. So beware of the hypocrites. The hypocrites. Yeah, I can't speak this morning for some reason, but we'll get through it. And then he gives three examples. Gives the example of those that would give. In their giving, they like to put on a show. They like to get a lot of attention. That's really the whole reason they're giving to charity, giving alms in the first place. It's not to the glory of God. It's really not even to help the needy. It's just so, just another way for them To practice evil cloaked in goodness. And Kent Hughes, I quoted him last week. He says, the truth is they were not giving but buying and they got what they paid for. And what a sobering thought that that they're giving all this money just to get adulation or praise from men. That's not true religion. That's not true worship. That's not what conversion or righteousness is all about. It's just the opposite. This morning, we're going to look at 
another example that he gives, and that is, it is possible for this danger of hypocrisy to creep into our lives in our prayer lives. Prayer is a wonderful thing. And I know that we all strive to pray more and more and enjoy our times of prayer. But there is a danger that we need to watch out for. Because perhaps maybe our idea of what prayer should look like and the result of it is not the same idea or picture that the Bible gives. So Jesus is going to help us in that this morning. So we're going to look at some ways not to pray. Then he gives us uh, the model prayer of the Lord's Prayer. And we'll study that for a few weeks. About five years ago, we went through the Lord's Prayer and I used to, took about 15 sermons to go through that. We did a little bit advanced work and then concluded that. I'm not going to take 15 sermons to go through it this time. But as I was reviewing it, there are... I think God's people constantly need reminders about the right way to pray. And I noticed as I was reviewing that, that there were things that had slipped in my life. After spending all that time on the Lord's Prayer, there are things that had slipped in my life in prayer. So we're going to spend two or three, maybe four weeks in looking at this model prayer and how to pray. But for right now, we're going to look at how not to pray. So let's look at chapter 6 in the book of Matthew, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask. And Jesus is a teacher. He's a rabbi. And what do teachers do sometimes? Sometimes if they want to teach something really basic or really important, and there are already bad examples of the good thing they want to teach, they address those first. And so that's exactly what Jesus does. There, there are popular bad examples of a prayer life or what it means to pray that everyone would be privy to in that culture. And so he draws attention to that. It's kind of like... Um, if you ever joined a team when you were younger, say it's your first year of baseball or something, and the coaches are glad to get you on the team, and they'll say something to the effect of, I'm glad you've never played because now I don't have to undo all the bad habits that you've learned, you know, in your batting stance and things like that. So we pick up bad habits. So these are examples of how not to pray, and exactly they are perfect examples of how to have a not-so-good prayer life. Good examples of how to have your prayers not answered, how to have or how to have a meaningless prayer life. Jesus calls these people out. Uh, I don't think it would be a very good feeling to be called out by Jesus and become the new poster child of how not to pray. But that's exactly what he does. And Jesus is one that speaks the truth in love. He's not making fun of these people. 
But this is an important matter. Prayer is supposed to be a true, sincere thing that takes place. And so if it's not being practiced in the right way, Jesus calls it out. And he doesn't even say, hey, you got to give them an A for effort there because, boy, they've been praying for three hours the same words or the same sentence. He doesn't do that. He doesn't send everybody on the prayer team home with little medals because they all participated. He calls them out because these folks really need help in their prayer life. So this morning we'll look at a few thou shalt nots, if, if you want to call them that, about prayer. And there's two assumptions before he gets into the shalt nots that Jesus makes. One assumption is that, he, that the people that are around him do have a prayer life because he says, when you pray. So there's this assumption that they're at least making an, an effort or maybe they've been praying most of their lives. But they have a knowledge of it. But it's when you pray. So Jesus assumes that we will be praying. And the second assumption is that though they may have been praying, they still need instruction in their prayer lives. And so he gives them this model prayer. And in Luke's account, in Luke's gospel account of this very same scene, the disciples actually come to him and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. I think that's so interesting because... Those disciples had been trained to pray. They had been brought up in prayer. They had been praying. And yet there's still something about Jesus that makes it different. And they realize my prayer life is not like that. I've been praying all my life. I've been devoted to prayer. I'm trying to to do it right. And it's still not, not like what you pray. The way you approach your heavenly father. Teach me how to pray like that. And So that's what this is. It's an instruction. It's a model prayer. We'll spend some time and go through that. So there's those two assumptions. We can always use instruction. But first, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. And we learned last week what a hypocrite is. What's the context behind that in giving. But a hypocrite in the Greek word has to do with the stage and the theater. And whenever they wanted to bring a new character To do this play or this drama, the new character would put a mask over their faces to show I'm no longer playing this person. Now I'm taking up this mask and playing this character. And Jesus is saying what hypocrites are doing is they are trying to play characters that they are not. They're trying to be something that they're not in real life. It's just a play. They're just putting on a show. And it's phony. And boy, they really, really liked to play the part. When they gave, they blew their little trumpets or they waited till some horn was blown to get attention. Then they started their performance of giving. In here, in the life of a hypocritical prayer, it's a little different. He says that to play the part, what they do in verse 5, is they love to stand and pray in the synagogues as well as as on street corners. So this is maybe prayers in the church within other people of God, but also outside on the streets. They don't just leave it in the church. Any kind of audience that they can get anywhere, they can get it. So this is an organized group of people. They work very hard to get the praise that they really want to. Uh, they're disciplined I would imagine that they certainly rehearsed the words that they were going to say, because after all, it is a performance. 
And I would imagine that they had uh, inflection, vo- pronunciation, pronunciation down and f- voice inflection to perfection to put on the performance of their lives so that they could get the attention that they needed. And just to be clear, there's absolutely nothing wrong with praying. There's nothing wrong with praying while you're standing in the church. There's nothing wrong with praying out in the streets in public. Jesus does all of these things. And in different parts of Scripture, we are asked to do all of these things as well. Pray in the synagogue, outside of the synagogue. So what's Jesus really after then in this? Well, as we saw last week, it always comes down, hypocrisy always comes down to what is in our hearts. What's the motivation of our hearts? What are we really after? Why are we really doing this deed that the Bible describes as a good thing and a righteous thing? It may not be for the purpose of being good and righteous. It may be for the purpose of self We may not be loving God. It may not be an expression or an act or another way to love God. Hypocrisy is so dangerous because it's a way to love self, but yet it's cloaked in ways that people typically love God. It's no wonder that Jesus would go after this kind of of practice of righteousness, this kind of um, living out your faith. It's, It's just... It's very dangerous. And not only if we're not careful, not only will we fool other people, but we will fool ourselves and begin to think that maybe I am righteous based on all the praise I'm getting from my fellow man. But this hypocrite is more concerned that people think he he or she is righteous then they are concerned with actually becoming righteous. Have you ever had those thoughts? It's more important that people think I'm righteous than it is that I actually become righteous. Or rather than working really hard to be close to God, they work really hard at getting people to think they're close to God. So they went to great lengths to fool those around them or the general population. Jesus sees right through it and he calls them out on it. Well, maybe we don't have quite the show or that kind of showy hypocrisy in our day. So what what would it look like? Do we have hypocritical tendencies in our lives? Well, one way perhaps to test that would be to ask ourselves, How much time do I spend praying in public opportunities as opposed to in private when it's just me and God or God and I? Do I spend more time praying in church opportunities, praying in public so my brothers and sisters will hear that? But when I'm so maybe go on and on at our prayer meeting or Bible study for 10 minutes. But when I get home, it's a 10 second time if I even have that. There's something fishy with that. Perhaps our motivation. Or how about there are times when, say, uh, there's a church-sponsored event, maybe a guy's retreat, a girl's retreat, ladies' retreat coming up. Uh, We have lots of opportunities for us to come together 
uh, to, to practice our righteousness, to pray, to learn about God. So say we're at one of these retreats and you're given an opportunity to have personal devotion time, one on one time with God. And you get there and you find a, a nice place, uh, not too excluded, but maybe on the steps and your Bible's open and maybe your, your eyes are closed and you may even be mouthing words. And, and you want people to think this is the kind of person you are. That this is just your regular spiritual habit. You're that close to God. You love His Word that much. You love to pray and spend time with Him. But that's not you at all at home. Now, if that's you turning over a new leaf and saying, man, I need God in this way, that's a respectable thing. But if it's just because I want my fellow brothers and sisters to get this impression of me that I am really close to God and I really love his word, but I don't. Now, it would be wonderful if I loved God that much and was that sincere. But if I don't, then why am I wanting others to think I am? Something happened in my motivation. Something happened in my view of God. On purpose or not. And it became not about the glory of God and true righteousness, but it became about me putting on a show. That's hypocrisy. And it can slip in at any time, at any church, into any heart. And so Jesus says, beware. Take the mask off. Don't try to be something you're not. If you're truly a sinner and you need to have your devotions and you're not, repent and have your devotions. But don't try to be righteous without the repentance, without asking the forgiveness, the cleansing. That's another form of self-love and self-righteousness. One pastor, a pastor in Scotland, William Still, he says, When it comes to prayer, the church prayer meeting ought to be the tip of the iceberg. Now, iceberg, I like that because when you see an iceberg um, above sea level or water level, so to speak, that's only 10% of what you're seeing. That's how icebergs function. 90% of it is sub-level. And he's saying that what people actually see of you should just be the 10%. There should be this bedrock of spirituality. In other words, what they see here should be based on all of this private, personal time in prayer. The iceberg. And some Christians are proud vessels above ground, and yet we're shipwrecks underneath. Why do we feel the need to do that? To present ourselves as we have it all together. When underneath we're a wreck. That's not addressing the true problems of the heart that Jesus wants to get in there and wrestle with us on and address. It's a sad kind of prayer life. You know, these hypocrites aren't receiving help from heaven because they're not really even asking for it. They're not receiving answers to prayer. They don't even care about answers. They're not really even asking God to do anything. What they're doing is praying in such a way so that all these good reviews will just keep pouring in over my prayer life. That's sad. It's sad that we would take the time to perfect something that's so ungodly. To, to perfect something that doesn't even touch heaven, Jesus says. You just got your reward. You just got what you came here to get it. And you, you achieve that. But there's nothing coming down from heaven. 
Because you're not even really talking to heaven. So they don't get the spiritual help for their efforts. As soon as they say amen, that prayer, that's paid in full. So you can have the approval of man, if that's what you after, or the mercy of God, but you can't have both. And in our prayer lives, we want to search our hearts and our motivations. Why am I really saying this? Why am I really doing this? So human praise doesn't last very long. And most importantly, perhaps, nor does it help us in the day of judgment. Because God is not impressed with our phony righteousness. And what he is looking for in the day of judgment isn't how righteous... We think we are, but did we believe in Jesus Christ, his vessel of salvation? Did we place our faith in him and say, I trust you with my life? And I recognize I need to trust you because I'm not a righteous person. I fall short in every way and imagination. And so he's teaching his disciples that when it comes to prayer, we have we have to make choices Who it is we're really trying to impress. And there is a difference. And God knows it. Get off the stage in essence. Just just get off the stage if if you're going to pretend. And uh, and when you really want to talk to me, then come back on and and we'll have a conversation. And then there's the other example that he gives is of how not to pray. Of all things is outside the church. It's not even really a Jewish issue so much. It's non-Jewish. It's babbling like the pagans. They had kind of a different way or method or mode of trying to get answers to prayers. Sometime in Jesus' life, it must have been pretty common. Jesus witnessed this very thing. Repetition. Verse 7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetitions. As the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. So he noticed this and he points it out. Perhaps maybe you've noticed this in your life as well with different religions. There are different religions that teach or believe that if you just keep saying the same thing over and over, sooner or later, you very well may get an answer to that prayer. Now, there's something underneath that. I've been exposed to that. One time I was flying overseas and there were men on the back of a plane of a certain religion and they were all chanting the very same thing for a long time as they prayed on that plane. The problem with this kind of prayer isn't necessarily how long it takes. We can... Praying long is not a bad thing. It's what's behind it and the repetition. Praying for something over and over. So what is behind that? Well, the Greeks and the Romans, you know, they kind of shared gods and renamed their gods. They had many, many gods. And so they had when they prayed, they basically had a list of names of all the different gods that they were trying to address in their neediness. And they would recite long incantations to try to appease all of these gods or any of these gods that happened to be listening at the time. And the reason that they had to keep repeating themselves, it was kind of like 
their prayers were kind of like lucky charms. You know, maybe sooner or later, one of those gods up there will actually hear what I'm saying. If I say it enough or if I say it long enough or loudly enough, if I if I make a big enough fuss down here, just maybe one of these gods will hear me and come to my aid. it's It's a terrible system of insecurity. And so they babble and babble on out of desperation. And basically it's meaningless words. Even within Christendom, we have to be careful about meaningless words because we can pray the same prayer over and over just to get it over with or just to think, well, if I prayed enough, God will hear it and really not mean it. They're just words. It becomes kind of a, a good luck charm for us. Does this mean we shouldn't be repetitive in our prayers? Absolutely not. There are important things that God would have us to pray every day with sincerity. But we don't want to think that it is because we said it so many times. Finally, we got God's attention and he wasn't listening before that. But that 105th time did him in and he heard it. It's, it's bad theology in this. Jesus is pointing out doesn't have to be this way. The catch is, why do they pray like this? Why do they say things over and over? It is because the character of the gods, the weak character of their gods, are not sure that they're even listening to them. And they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Maybe this will increase my chances. If I can just get them interested in my personal affairs. If I pitch a big enough fit, how sad that is. Philip Riken says they're like spiritual orphans. They don't know what it's like to be loved by a caring, attentive father that makes promises, keeps promises, and is absolutely faithful all the time. They don't know what that's like. It's kind of like what's modeled in families sometimes. We see insecurity with children that have never really known safety and faithfulness and true attentiveness and love. And so they do whatever they can to get attention. It's the same thing on a spiritual level or similar thing anyway, on a spiritual level. It's bad theology. It's bad gods, false gods. So that's what they do. Begging for something real. Begging for a deity to acknowledge them in some kind of way. In the Old Testament, they even cut themselves to try to get the attention of their false gods. They're not sure that anybody's even hearing them if the gods really care. So they put on this spectacle because of the lack of love and grace. You know, people are always calling out to God or gods in every age. We see it in Scripture. We see it today. Every age, there's always people in one way or another, one form or other, calling out to God. But just calling out to gods or generic God doesn't always get the true God's attention. I'm reminded of the Scripture in Acts chapter 4, where... Our God, or the God of Scripture, has distinct character. He's a distinct person. He's not just a generic God that answers to the name of all gods. He's a distinct God, and he has even given distinct names. That means something. 
In Acts 4, verses 11 through 12, it says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can we reject the God of Scripture and then expect Him to answer us or answer to any name that we decide to give Him? I think names are important. Character and essence is important when it comes to theology. And who exactly are we addressing? That matters to God. If we know the difference, it matters who we're crying out to. Is the true God obligated to save everyone that calls some generic name of God? And then we might think, well, if it's so important for people to know the name of Jesus, then how could they possibly know? Scripture says, I'll tell you how they're going to know. My disciples are going to tell them. They're going to tell them about the true God, Jesus, the one and only, the way to get saved. The only way. So when... As you know, my kids are uh, blessed that they're all here this morning, and they are very grown now. They're very grown up. But there are still times in this church, I'll hear somebody else's child say the name Daddy. And I turn instinctively, because it sounded just like one of my kids. But then I know, well, that's not, that can't be my kid, because my kid, they don't do that anymore. But it's that instinctiveness there. And then I don't go to that child and say, here I am. Yes, my son or daughter, what do you need? Because that would really confuse them because I'm not their daddy. And what they really want is their real, sincere, true to life father. And it's the same way in our prayer life. He's he's our real, true to life father. And he will answer in that way. we, We don't want any other gods pretending. In that sense, or giving them that freedom, it just confuses things. So people need to know about the name of Jesus, because there are times, I think, that people's lives will be in crises and they will be tempted. Even they might know they might be atheists and they don't want to believe in God. They're going to be very tempted. Man, there's got to be something out there. I need some help. And it would be nice for them to know. That somebody said, you know what, there might be a time, maybe not now, you're not ready for it. I understand, I was there. You're not interested in God. But look, there might be a time in your life when you're really low. There might be a time in your life when you see things differently than you do now and your eyes are opened a little bit to the fact that maybe there's something out there beyond this world that can help you and save you. You might begin to feel conviction of sin. And when you do, what I want you to do is consider this. The Bible says there is a Savior. There's only one Savior, and His name is Jesus. So when you get like that, when you feel this need to reach out to something other than this world, call out to the name of Jesus. He's the real God. He will meet you in your need. I'm so grateful that when I was 19 and I came to Christ, and I was that that young man that was crying out in desperation for forgiveness of sins, I knew who to cry out to. I didn't cry to Allah. I didn't cry to Krishna or Mother Earth. I cried to Jesus because I was taught throughout my life, He's the one real God. And even though I didn't believe in Him that much, not enough in a saving way, 
At least I had that knowledge when the time came and I was ready. When God made me ready, I cried out to the right person, the right father. And he is my real heavenly father. Because of that, we want to tell people about Jesus and bring glory to God. So God is merciful, but we can't resist his son and demand that the father let us in. That's the way to salvation is through the son. We want to give our hearts to him. And it's this privilege of prayers only for those that have put their faith in Christ who have God as their true father. So something to think about in our prayer lives, if we find ourselves uh, praying repetitiously or meaninglessly or insecurely and we're, we're begging as if, we, as if we don't know if God is really there, as if we don't know God really hears us, then have we truly placed our faith in Christ? Have we experienced that security of salvation that Scripture promises? It's something to think about. God's not a half God or a demigod or a mistake God like some of the false gods. He is a real, true-to-life person that will come into your life and be real to you absolutely every day and bring you in to the best possible life you can have to your purpose of bringing Him glory. Prayer can be a remarkable thing. God is nothing but faithful. And that's Jesus' answer as we, as we begin to wind down here. You're the real Father. Guess what? He already knows what you're going to say before you ever said it. So that kind of makes the repetition and the meaningless words perfunctory, right? Now they have no purpose at all because... If you serve the true God, he already knows what you're going to say before you say it. He knows your thoughts. In other words, he's already there. Before you showed up in your closet, he's already there with you. And those things, you don't have to, to beg for his attention in that way. He's a loving father, a good father. He wants to be there. He wants to hear you. He wants to talk to you. It makes all the difference in the kind of prayer lives that we have do we have a faithful father? Are we secure? God knows these things. So when you go into your closet and you have your prayer time, you're not going to catch him off guard. You're not going to, you know, I need a job. I need a job. I need a job. I need a job. I need and repetition and repetition. And finally, oh, did you just say you needed a job? I'm glad you let me in on that because I hadn't noticed When's the last time you had a paycheck? That's not how it works. God is not like that. Can you imagine serving a God like that? How miserable would that be? God knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and promises to bring the blessings we need according to His sovereign will. It's a beautiful relationship to be had. And so Jesus is saying, watch out, folks. Just watch out. Watch out for that inherent danger in your heart. Your prayers aren't going to make God do anything He doesn't want to do, no matter how many times you say them. No matter how sincere you are, you can't twist God's arm, right? He's a sovereign God. If you get something, it's because He wants you to have it. It's not this unhealthy relationship that sometimes parents create with their, you know, Kids create with their parents in a grocery store. If I throw a big enough fit, I'm going to get that candy. 
If I throw a big enough fit in public, God doesn't work that way. You throw, go ahead and throw a fit. He he doesn't stoop to that level of relationship. It's all pure. It's all good. It's all holy. So how does he want us to pray? What's the picture in Jesus' mind when he pictures the disciples or the saints praying to God? Verse 6. Go into your inner room. Close your door. Pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's nothing ostentatious about that. Nothing showy. It's just you and God. Praying, speaking, listening. This inner room, word for inner chamber. Some scholars say, well, most of the houses in that day only had a room with one door. It would be like the, kind of a pantry type room. So the only room in your house with a door on it, just go into a secret place. The idea is find a a place of solitude, a secret place, and get with your God in private. It's it's a personal meeting. Uh, Susanna Wesley, who had 17 kids, her prayer closet was her apron, they say. She'd take her apron, throw it over her head, that her kids were trained to know, I'm in my prayer closet, don't bother me right now till I'm finished. That was her prayer closet. Some guys might just put their hat over their head so they can just uh, get rid of the distractions and focus on God. That's where the Christian and his God meet in that prayer closet. That's where God is waiting for us. So what does this mean? As we think about hypocrisy in general and this idea of how God envisions a relationship with us in secret, private, uh, private, quietly. It means that there may be times when the greatest prayers that we ever prayed or the greatest acts of righteousness that we've ever performed, nobody ever heard or saw. It was in obscurity. It might mean that you offer your body as a living sacrifice to God in ministry. And nobody ever says a word to you about it. No man gives you praise. And you think it sure would have been nice considering all the effort I went to to teach Sunday school class for for 55 years. Sure would have been nice if somebody just would have said good job. Or all the time we put into practicing these songs. It would have been nice if somebody just would have said something. If I would have gotten some praise. But when our life of service is to please God and not man... What is Proverbs? I think it's 27 two. Actually, Scripture says, do not praise yourself. Let others do it. So some of the greatest acts of righteousness may never, ever be known except by your heavenly father. And that needs to be OK. And if we start feeling this insecurity of needing the praise of man, as wonderful as it is, we have to watch our hearts. That we are serving God for the right reason. That he might increase and we might decrease. May God bless the preaching of his word.